to a Hope 103.2 podcast. All of us, I'm sure, have had moments in life when the sheer beauty and order of the world are undeniable. My most recent experience like this was sitting on Coolum Beach in Queensland on our last family holiday. We were eating pizza together as the sun went down on a gorgeous day. I could have sat there for hours. The waves were washing peacefully against the shore. The food and drink was beautiful, and Buff and I snuggled as we watched the kids playing together happily. In moments like these, it's easy to conclude that planet Earth is a place of unhindered beauty. And in a sense, that's right. But it only takes the flick of a remote control, or for some of us, first-hand experience, to discover that all is not well. This beautiful place also has a habit of turning ugly. It dishes out floods, droughts, earthquakes, ozone holes, cancers, and so on. It suddenly becomes easy to think of planet Earth as a place of cruelty, or at least of blind indifference. And in a sense, that's right too. There is, in other words, what appears to be an unresolvable tension, even contradiction in our world, between its undeniable beauty and its manifest ugliness. From its opening chapters, the Bible is up front about this contradiction. Genesis 1 and 2 describe in idyllic terms the beauty and goodness of the created order. The refrain, and it was good, occurs seven times in chapter 1 alone. And chapter 2 goes on to describe that good in terms of perfection in the social, spiritual and physical spheres of existence. But turn the page to Genesis 3 and suddenly we're confronted with the not-so-good. The social relationship between man and the woman breaks down. The spiritual connection between human beings and God collapses. And the physical environment itself becomes corrupted. Crystallised in the ominous words to Adam in Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Eden is lost. Now only to be glimpsed in the fleeting beauties of an imperfect world. But of course, this is not the end, and Genesis was never meant to be read that way. The tragic narrative here at the front of the Bible is not there simply as a lament, decrying how bad things have become, nor is it simply what people call an etiology, that is, an explanation of why things are the way they are. Genesis 1-3 is also about eschatology, about the way things will be when the Creator fulfills His purposes. The contrast between the ideal of Genesis 1 and 2 and the fall of Genesis 3 is really the contrast between God's ultimate intentions and our contemporary experience. Put another way, the picture of Genesis 1 to 2 is intended to provide hope for all of us living in the shadow of Genesis 3. Hope that God the Creator will restore creation to its ideal. Perhaps an analogy will help here. Imagine a child born with some disability that could only be treated once he turned, say, five. Until that day, he knew only the frailties and restrictions of his condition. 
The day comes for him to meet the specialist in charge of his case, who begins not by explaining the condition itself or the treatment to follow, but by describing how a healthy child's body is meant to work. As the doctor paints this ideal picture, the young boy's mind is flooded with thoughts of the possibilities, the running, the climbing, the rumbling, and so on. Even as they move on to discuss the condition and treatment, the boy can't get out of his head the doctor's wonderful picture of perfect health. That image will sustain him in the difficult months ahead. It will give him hope. I believe that is how we're meant to approach the opening pages of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2 provide us with the picture of health to which the creation will ultimately be restored. I'm not saying Genesis 1 and 2 weren't also written to emphasise God's original fashioning of the world. They were. But it's precisely because the Creator is, as he's described in these texts, powerful, ordered and gracious, that we're able to read Genesis not simply as an affirmation about the past, but also as a promise about the future. Genesis 1 and 2, in other words, establish the shape of our future hope. Let me explain this a little more. I said a few nights ago that the Bible's doctrine of the afterlife owed everything to the wonderful Jewish doctrine of God as the creator of physical life. God the creator was not going to destroy the body. He was going to resurrect it just as he did with Jesus. A similar logic lies behind the Bible's promise about God's eternal kingdom, where we will live out this bodily resurrection. Pagan notions of a soulish netherworld are nowhere to be found. What we find instead is a single-minded affirmation that the ideal of creation, established in Genesis 1 and 2, is the very basis of our thoughts about God's promised future. When the Bible writers dare to describe the coming kingdom, They never reach for the imagery of spirits, harps and halos. They grab hold of Genesis 1 and 2 and say two words, new creation. Take the greatest of Israel's prophets, Isaiah, writing 700 years before Jesus during one of the lowest points in biblical history, a period when the contradictions of life this side of Genesis 3 were being felt acutely. The prophet declares that out of the ruins of Israel, indeed the ruins of the entire world, God would prove faithful to his creatures and faithful to his creation. Isaiah 65, 17. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. The opening sentence of this prophecy deliberately echoes the opening sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What God did in the beginning, says Isaiah, he will do again. The order and perfection of Eden will be restored. The physical environment itself, Isaiah goes on to describe in Isaiah 65, will be prosperous, no longer under a curse. So we read in verse 21, they will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Or verse 22, my chosen ones will enjoy the work of their hands 
Or verse 23, they will not toil in vain. Now we mustn't miss the deliberate echoes here. Back in Genesis 3, we were told that the physical environment was cursed because of Adam's rejection of God. So in Genesis 3.17, we read, To Adam he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Well, Isaiah 65.23 picks up this idea and tells us that this toil with creation will be resolved. The picture of an ideal physical order climaxes in the final verse of Isaiah 65. That's verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now it's possible these animals are metaphors for the different nations, but it's equally possible Isaiah actually intends this as a poetic but nonetheless concrete description of harmony in the physical world. I'm not saying Isaiah envisages the lion anatomically becoming a herbivore, but he may be describing harmony in the animal kingdom, a theme that also comes straight out of Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. The Sunday school question, will my dog be in heaven, may not be as silly as it sounds. In short, Isaiah chapter 65 foresees a time when all of the ideals of Eden will be restored, when people will be in harmony with each other, when humankind will celebrate its God, and when creation itself will prosper unhindered, with evil completely undone. That's what the coming kingdom is all about. And we'll see next time that the New Testament says a hearty Amen to that. Hope 103.2 Thanks for listening.